Hello, and welcome to the October 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up this month, significant appellate courts in Arizona and New York extended traditional family law presumptions of legal parentage to same-sex couples. Can you start with the Arizona Supreme Court case, Art? Yes. uh, Arizona Supreme Court, September 19th. The decision is McLaughlin versus Joan, but real party and interest McLaughlin. Uh, This is a logical application of the Supreme Court's recent Pavan versus Smith decision from June 26th of this year, as well, of course, as Obergefell versus Hodges, the marriage equality case. Uh, These – this involves uh, two women who were married in California in the five-month gap period in 2008 between the California Supreme Court's in-ray marriage cases decision and the adoption of Prop 8. Uh, So there was this five-month period where people could get married. They got married. Uh, Subsequently, the California Supreme Court ruled that people who got married during the gap period remained married as far as California law was involved. Uh, They decided to have a child together. Uh, Susan went through donor insemination unsuccessfully. Then Kimberly tried and succeeded in becoming pregnant and uh, bearing a child. They signed a joint parenting agreement. Uh, before the birth of the child in which they declared that Susan would be a co-parent of the child, uh, that Kimberly intends for Susan to be a second parent, etc., etc., and should the relationship end, it's the party's intention that the parenting relationship between Susan and the child shall continue with shared custody, regular visitation, and child support proportional to custody, time, and income. Uh, Of course, such agreements are not binding on a court, but they're certainly evidence of the intention of the parties. They also executed wills, naming Suzanne as a parent of the child, a boy who was born in June 2011. So Kimberly, who was a doctor, worked full-time to support the family, and Susan stayed at home to care for the baby. But within a few years, their relationship had fallen apart. Kimberly moved out with the child and cut off Suzanne's contact. Suzanne files a petition in state court. They were living in Arizona at the time. Uh, She couldn't file for divorce because Arizona did not recognize same-sex marriages in uh, 2013. Uh, So she's seeking dissolution of the marriage, and she also wanted to uh, have uh, parental status recognized with respect to the child, Uh, maybe joint custody, certainly visitation. Uh, While her case was pending, a a federal district court in Arizona declared the state's ban on same-sex marriage unconstitutional. Uh, That was not appealed uh, to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, The state acquiesced in the ruling uh, because the Ninth Circuit in the interim was deciding marriage cases from other states, and ultimately the Supreme Court uh, refused uh, cert on uh, petitions by other states from the Ninth Circuit rulings. And, of course, then Obergefell came along. So at this point, with Obergefell and with same-sex marriage legal in Arizona, the marriage would be recognized under California uh, under California law and recognized under Arizona law. So, of course, this dissolution proceeding could be turned into a divorce proceeding. But the question still remained whether, for purposes of this proceeding, Suzanne would be recognized by the Arizona court as a child 
as a parent of this child who was conceived uh, by donor insemination of her wife. Uh, And here uh, we run into the problem uh, that there is a statute in Arizona that makes it clear that if a married woman becomes pregnant through donor insemination with the consent of her husband, he will be presumed to be the father legally. And uh, the problem was, of course, we're not dealing with the father here. We're dealing with a second mother. And uh, the argument was by, uh, by Kimberly that that statute did not apply to this situation because it only dealt with the status of fathers. And uh, Suzanne argues, of course, that it should be given a gender-neutral interpretation in order to effectuate the ruling in Obergefell that same-sex married couples are to be dealt with the same as different-sex married couples. And the trial court agreed with Suzanne. Kimberly appealed. And the Arizona Supreme Court all agreed, although not all necessarily on the remedy, but all agreed that under Obergefell and Pavan versus Smith, uh, a same-sex married couple has to be accorded all the same rights and have all the same responsibilities as a different-sex couple. So the marital presumption should apply. The statute should receive a gender-neutral interpretation. Uh, a dissenting judge, uh, partially dissenting, uh, said that in this case it's up to the legislature to take care of the statute because he said on its face the statute is not unconstitutional. It just deals with the standing of men. It, it does not address the standing of women. And so it's up to the legislature to pass uh, the necessary fix to the statute to cover that. Uh, but he also would remand and and say that the court can decide this without using a presumption, just based on evidence of parental status. Uh, in any event, this is another state falling into line with the presumption. Uh, the case from New York has rather peculiar set of facts, and uh, this was a decision by the appellate division in the first department, uh, upholding a decision by the New York County Family Court to dissolve or vacate an adoption that had been granted. Uh, and therein lies an interesting tale. It's a uh, same-sex couple, two men who uh, resided in England, and at the time it became available in England, they formed a civil partnership, which under English law at the time would have pretty much all the rights and responsibilities of marriage. Uh, they subsequently moved to the United States, and uh, when England enacted same-sex marriage, it became possible for people to get married in England and have their marriages retroactively recognized to the date of their civil partnerships. Uh, And uh, these men, Marco and Ming, did that. Uh, Even though they were living in Florida at the time, I guess they flew back to England and they had their marriage ceremony. And then they returned to Florida and uh, they decided uh, to have a child. Uh, The child they had was conceived in 2013. Their marriage in England took place in 2015, and their civil partnership was formed in 2008. Uh, Okay, so they have the child uh, in 2013. They get married in 2015. Uh, The child was born in 2014. Uh, The child, uh, the surrogacy uh, that they used to have the child was carried out in the state of Missouri, Uh, The child was named after the mothers of both men, a daughter, uh, born in September 2014. The Missouri court terminated the parental rights of the egg donor and the surrogate and designated Marco, who was the genetic father, 
as having sole and exclusive custody of the child. Uh, the reason for that, of course, that Missouri at the time did not recognize same-sex marriages, so they did not recognize the English marriage. Okay, you following me on this? This yes. is a complicated story. I know it. So Marco Ming and the child then returned to Florida, where they lived as a family for a brief period of time. And then in October 2015, Ming returned to the U.K. to seek employment, said the court. No further explanation of that move. Uh, but evidently, the relationship of these men had become complicated because the court reports that at some point in or after 2013, Marco entered a relationship with one Carlos A. And they moved to New York with the child after Ming went to the UK. Uh, Carlos then petitioned the New York County Family Court to adopt the child in January 2016. And the adoption papers disclosed that Marco and Ming were married in 2008 but alleged that they had not lived together continuously since 2012 and that Carlos and Marco had been caring for the child since her birth. And uh, a home study was undertaken in connection with the adoption proceeding. It stated that Marco and Ming had legally separated in 2014 and had no children together. This, of course, was a lie. Okay, Uh, Ming had participated in the surrogacy process. Marco, Ming, and the child lived together as a family. This was not disclosed to the family court. Uh, The family court did not realize, because the facts were not presented to it, that there was another father out there. At least if you apply the parental presumption that when uh, a couple of men who are married uh, use a surrogate to have a child, that should be the same as if a man and a woman who were married used a surrogate. And so both men should be fathers, just as both women would be mothers if it was a lesbian couple using donor insemination. Mm-hmm. You know, you, if, if you're doing equal treatment, you should do equal treatment all the way, 100%. So in any event, uh, the family court, not being aware that there was another father out there, uh, granted the adoption. But in the meantime, Ming found out about this and filed a divorce petition in Florida and contacted the family court and said, hey, I am a father of this child. I was not notified of this adoption proceeding. I did not give consent to my daughter being adopted by my soon-to-be ex-husband's boyfriend. (laughs) This is so proper, isn't it? Uh, So I want you to vacate the adoption. And the family judge, court judge, agreed. Judge Weinstein agreed to do that. And uh, there was an appeal by Carlos and uh, Marco to the appellate division. They said, you can't just cancel an adoption. It's final, right? Yeah, no, I mean, everything you, you hear can't, about adoption... You can't divorce your kids, and they can't adore, you divorce know, you. final yeah. and sacred and yada, right. yada, yada. So, so but in this case, the but, appellate division said he was correct to do that because a fraud was perpetrated on the family court. And maybe some lawyers should be reported to uh, the disciplinary committee here. I know it. Uh, or were the lawyers kept in the dark. At any rate, the appellate division found that because... The 2015 British marriage was retroactive to 2008, and the child was conceived in 2013 and born in 2014. That means that Ming is presumed to be the father. And they said that this, uh, this result is uh, strengthened by the New York Court of Appeals 2016 decision in matter of Brooke SB against Elizabeth ACC about uh, parental standing in same-sex marriages. So... 
Back to square one for poor Carlos. Well, I can't be too sympathetic to Carlos. I assume he loves this little girl very much. He's participated in raising her, but he's not her father. And her father did not give legally, and her her father will not even buy any kind of presumption. Right. She said, maybe he's a. I guess I just mean he might be a father. He's a de facto co parent to the child's other father. Yes. Who is the biological father, by the way. Ming is not. Marco is the biological father, which makes this all so complicated. But I think it's interesting that in the context of all this entire soap opera, the court says, well, Ming is entitled to that uh, parental presumption because the child was born during the marriage. The child is the child of the marriage. So this presumption uh, even though Even though we're we're applying marriage retroactively and we're recognizing an English marriage to a couple who got married in England while they were living in Florida, where, of course, same-sex marriage wasn't available yet. Uh, but this, this presumption has really become a very important tool in uh, family law to, oh, to, yeah. to save the uh, parental rights of the non-bio parent and, and gay couples. Right, but we, we should caution people that this is a state-by-state process, yeah. and we have appellate rulings in some states and not in other states and one or two rejections. So you know, stay tuned and don't assume unless you have actually seen an opinion from the relevant state that, that any particular state will apply the presumption in the case of a same-sex couple. I really wonder, I'd love to see the papers in this case as to what they argued about why this adoption should have not been vacated. If there was material facts that were, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally not given to the judge that well, was granting that adoption. I think but, material facts were not given no, to the I judge. No, I know, and so I'm just saying, I wonder, you could say the adoption what would they argue on appeal, that you should allow an adoption to be permanent even though it was based on fraud? I mean, what do you say? Well, I think they're going to probably argue that this is an intact family, and they were living together, and, and it was in the best interest of the child uh, to cement this relationship. Uh, although, of course, Carlos and Marco are not married because Marco wasn't divorced from Ming yet. <laughs> Only have one husband at a time. Right. <laughs> it's an interesting case. Uh, so so the case is In Re Maria Irene D. And it's the Appellate Division, First Department, September 28th. All right. All right, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll discuss two new cert petitions filed at the U.S. Supreme Court to be aware of. We are back. During a U.S. Supreme Court term already expected to be monumental for LGBT rights, two more cert petitions have now been filed for the justices to consider. Can you tell us about them, Mark? Yeah. Uh, these emanate from Texas and Mississippi. Uh, so in Texas, we had a ruling from the Texas Supreme Court on June 30 where they pretended that uh, Pavan versus Smith and Obergefell versus uh, Hodges did not mean did not require that married same-sex couples have all the same rights and responsibilities of uh, different sex married couples. This was in a dispute about public employee benefits in the city of Houston, Texas, where uh, the mayor, an out lesbian at the time in in 2013 after the Windsor case, uh, got an opinion from her uh, city council that... Her city attorney. A city attorney that under the Windsor decision, they could and should recognize the same-sex spouses of city employees who went out of state to get married, because at that time Texas didn't have marriage equality, uh, and extend benefits to them. So she did by uh, executive order, and uh, a bunch of Republican activists ran into court 
and got a uh, preliminary injunction against the benefits. And this was appealed. And uh, the question uh, ultimately, after various halts and starts and intermediate appellate rulings and other things, came to the Texas Supreme Court. They sat on it for a long time, but finally they concluded that the preliminary injunction should be lifted or rather, no, that it should be in, reinstated because the Court of Appeals had lifted it. So it should be reinstated and uh, that Pigeon and uh, his his cohort here... Uh, <laughs> Larry Hicks, right? Uh, right, Hicks. Uh, trying to find their names here. So that they should have a chance to try to persuade the court that it was improper for the benefits to be extended. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Texas court said that's because... We, we are giving them this opportunity because we don't think that the Obergefell and Pavan decisions necessarily require that the benefits be extended to the same-sex spouses. And this is clearly wrong. And so it's, it's really an unusual situation in this case. But the city of Houston has hired a recently retired chief justice of the Texas Supreme Court named Wallace Jefferson to represent them on a cert petition to the U.S. Supreme Court asking it basically to tell the Texas Supreme Court that their interpretation of Obergefell is wrong. And this should be a no-brainer, really. Uh, it's it, After Pavan versus Smith, uh, it really nails down the point that married same-sex couples have the same rights as married different-sex couples. So if married different-sex couples in Houston, uh, where one of them is an employee of the city, get uh, uh, spousal benefits then the same should be true for same-sex couples. Even more now, when you have more and more people getting married in Texas, where it's been legal uh, since the Fifth Circuit uh, issued a ruling a few, uh, I think a few days after Obergefell, affirming a uh, decision by the Federal District Court in San Antonio that the Texas marriage ban was unconstitutional. So uh, this, is, this is an easy one. It yeah. seems to me that it should be disposed of the same way that Pavan versus Smith was, that is no need for oral argument and merits briefing. Based on the cert papers, they should be able to uh, grant cert, reverse, and remand. And I hope, but I, as I said to you, I, I think hope. in an email, there's some folks that have commented that there's no final judgment for them to review because of all the weird procedural posture. Yeah, of the this preliminary case. injunction and everything else. So that's so, but I hope that they uh, overlook or find a way to overlook that. Well, problem. at least, at least. I would think grant grant the petition remand for reconsideration by the Texas Supreme Court, cite Pavan, and maybe one or two sentences of explanation. But more than that shouldn't be needed. Yeah. Although, of course, we'll end up with a dissent by Gorsuch, <laughs> like his Pavan <laughs> dissent. Uh, the other case uh, is an interesting dispute about Article Three standing. Uh, this involves HB 1523, the notorious Mississippi statute passed in 2016, as a reaction to the Obergefell case uh, and the desire of the legislature to allow people who don't like marriage equality, either for religious or moral objections, to go on with their lives and discriminate freely against people if they want to as, uh, as long as uh, they have a set of beliefs that are expressed in the statute uh, that provide the basis for their refusal of services or goods or uh, clerk's offices refusing to issue marriage licenses or whatever. Uh, these are the beliefs that have now been enshrined, especially protected under Mississippi law, that 
only a marriage between a man and a woman is legitimate, uh, that uh, people's biological sex is fixed at birth and can never change. Uh, and uh, let's see. Uh, out of wedlock sex. Right. Is- Any sex out of wedlock is improper, immoral, and should not be tolerated, and you can discriminate against people who engage in it. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're basically enacting a strict fundamentalist Christian moral code for the uh, people of Mississippi. Uh, they don't have to live according to it, but if they do, they are sheltered from any adverse action by the state because this is, uh, this is about religious freedom. This isn't about discrimination. This is about religious freedom. So uh, uh, several lawsuits were filed attacking this. Uh, they ended up, I wonder, by pure happenstance before Judge, U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves, who decided the Mississippi marriage equality case a few years ago, and he quickly issued a preliminary injunction to keep the law from going into effect. Uh, and the, the legislators made the mistake that it didn't go effect immediately on signing. It was a few weeks later, so there was time for the plaintiffs in these cases to run into court and to get an, a preliminary injunction out of Judge Reeves. Uh, and so the uh, state appealed the preliminary injunction, and the Fifth Circuit said that the plaintiffs did not have standing to challenge the statute because it hadn't gone into effect yet, and so no one had suffered a personal injury. Uh, and they argued, well, just a minute, this is a violation of the Establishment Clause. As soon as the governor signed it, it uh, I mean, the Establishment Clause was violated, mm-hmm. the state adopted a set of religious principles as part of its law and privileged people with those principles to engage in conduct that might otherwise be forbidden to people who didn't share those religious principles. And sort of relegating to second-class status everybody in the state who didn't subscribe to these particular religious or moral beliefs, surely that violates the Establishment Clause. And uh, Judge Reeves had found in issuing the preliminary injunctions that the plaintiffs were very likely to succeed on the merits of their claim that the Establishment Clause was violated here. And there are other potential constitutional violations as well, but the Establishment Clause sort of jumps out at you as the biggest. And uh, although the the court decided that there's no standing here, there was an immediate petition filed for on-bank reconsideration, since this was just a three-judge panel. And the on-bank petition was denied on September 29th, sparking a dissent by Judge James Dennis and one other judge. Uh, Judge Dennis wrote at length about how there was plenty of circuit precedent, including from the Fifth Circuit, and there was Supreme Court precedent suggesting that people have standing to challenge the state's adoption of a policy in a statute or regulation that arguably violates the Equal Protection Clause, or rather the... uh, the Establishment Clause, that there is a constitutional injury there. Uh, And a member of the public who is uh, denied uh, a particular right or privilege because of their beliefs or lack of religious beliefs has a personal injury, uh, which gives them standing to bring suit. Uh, And in fact, it seemed like Judge Dennis was almost setting this up for a cert petition because he dramatically illustrated the split in the circuits that is created by this ruling. It's a departure from the approach of other uh, circuits. Uh, so Lambda Legal, which is counsel to one of the consolidated cases, promptly announced that they would petition the Supreme Court to review the Fifth Circuit's ruling on the issue of standing, not on the underlying merits of the case. Mm. Uh, 
And uh, that petition had not been filed when we went to press, but it has since been filed on October 10th. Uh, so as to when the court will announce uh, whether it's granting these petitions, uh, after the petitions are filed, then the respondents have uh, a period of time to file a response, and amicus parties have a period of time to file amicus briefs on, on each side. So it could be uh, several weeks down the line, maybe even a few months before we hear. Uh, there were petitions filed over the summer, of course, in other cases that we're waiting to hear, and they haven't even been listed for the court's conference yet right. because the time to file amicus briefs. In those cases concern uh, Title whether seven, Title VII Title covers sexual orientation, whether Title IX um, covers uh, gender identity, discrimination in bathroom access. Yes. And also there's a uh, petition from a florist in the state of Washington who didn't want to do flower arrangements for a same-sex wedding. Ms. Stutzman. Yes, uh, so she's got a petition filed, too. And then there are these two petitions here. Yes. And, and, now, and, of course, they have scheduled oral argument for December 5th in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, right. which we'll be talking about a little more in our third segment. All right. So we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a great decision in a pre-enforcement constitutional challenge brought in Minnesota federal court. We are back. Uh, as we said, speaking of the Supreme Court, a lot of people are very concerned about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that will be argued on December 5th, but we may have gotten some momentum out of a similar case in Minnesota. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, this this is a an interesting and peculiar case. Uh, I'm not sure, but it may be the first decision by a U- U.S. District Court on this issue because so far... All of these cases about refusals by businesses, and these are all small businesses, refusals to provide goods or services for same-sex weddings have arisen from complaints being filed with civil rights agencies where the jurisdiction prohibited discrimination in place of public accommodation because of sexual orientation. And so they've been litigated in the state courts. Uh, And that includes the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which is on appeal to the Supreme Court by a cert petition from the Colorado Court of Appeals, enforcing an administrative agency ruling against the baker who refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. So in this case, the case is in federal district court because the litigation is brought affirmatively by a business that would like to expand into providing a wedding service but doesn't want to have to comply with the state public accommodations law. So they want a declaration from the court that they don't have to uh, because of First Amendment concerns. And in this case, the couple uh, are doing business. It's a man, and, uh, a, a man and a woman who are married to each other. They're doing business under the business name Telescope Media Group. And Telescope Media Group uh, makes videos. They make films, basically, on hire. I mean, they're not out there like a movie studio making big full-length features. They're making films for people. Uh, probably uh, uh, industrial films and commercial films and things like that. And they haven't been doing weddings, but they'd like to expand into the wedding business. I think they want to expand into the wedding business because they were approached by the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom that was looking for a vehicle to get a court ruling uh, about the uh, the rights of religious objectors to refuse to provide goods and services for same-sex weddings. And they found videographers. Uh, So they want to get into the business, and they say that uh, right after the Obergefell decision, 
the Human Rights Agency in the state of Minnesota issued an advisory that because the public accommodations law in the state banned sexual orientation discrimination, any business that refused to provide goods or services for same-sex weddings was going to run into trouble with the Human Rights Agency, that uh, charges could be filed against them and it would be found to violate uh, the human rights law. Uh, so they said, we are, our rights are being frozen by this. We can't expand into the wedding video business unless we make wedding videos for same-sex couples. And by the way, we've already been contacted by one same-sex couple who wanted us to do their wedding, and we just told them we don't do weddings at all. So that's okay. That's legal. If you don't do weddings, you don't do weddings. You're not discriminating. But uh, we would like to get into that business. Uh, but we think that if we get if we get into that business and we turn down same-sex couples, look at what's happening in other states. We're going to have charges filed against us. We're going to end up before the Human Rights Commission. We may be fined. Uh, we may be enjoined in some way. Uh, so we want a declaration out of the court that under the First Amendment, we have a right to refuse to make same-sex wedding videos. And Judge John Tunheim of the U.S. District Court in Minnesota said, nah. Now, looking at the decisions from the state appellate courts in other states, New Mexico, with the wedding photographer, which is somewhat analogous here, visual arts, uh, the florist cases, the baker cases, the uh, wedding farm cases, you go all over the country. We've never lost one of these cases yet in a state appeals court. And he says, for good reason. Uh, ADF came up with like seven different theories as to why that they should be privileged, these plaintiffs should be privileged not to have to do it. And uh, Judge Tunheim went through them methodically and cited lots of Supreme Court precedents and Court of Appeals cases and really built up a mountain of analysis as to why these people don't have either a First Amendment or a Fourteenth Amendment right because they tried to make due process claims under the Fourteenth Amendment. They tried to make equal protection claims. They tried to make free speech. They said they tried to make a forced association claim. They said if you force us to make a wedding video, we have to be there to make the video. You're forcing us to participate in a same-sex marriage, which is religiously odious to us. You know, it's forced association. Well, you know, anytime someone doesn't want to associate with a potential customer because of their race or their religion or their sexual orientation or whatever, do they have a right not to enter into a forced association? I mean, public accommodations laws are about saying, get over it. You're, you know, you're operating in the public sphere. You're operating in the commercial marketplace. And in the United States, that means you're not allowed to discriminate with very, very narrow exceptions, extremely narrow exceptions. You have to have a legitimate business reason not to do business with somebody and that you have religious objections to their marriage is not a legitimate business reason. Well, and as of now, I'm not knocking wood. on desk. I think it's wood. <laughs> not sure. Maybe fake wood. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I told you this. I, by chance here, my friends of mine asked me to officiate their same-sex wedding last weekend, and we changed the uh, vows at the last minute, and then, of course, the printer in the hotel was down, so I had to go to Staples to print out the uh, final script for the wedding. And I got thinking on the way over there, is this something, you know, what if I f there was a religious person working at Staples, you know, on the copy machine part of Staples? Would she 
have a First Amendment right not to print this out for me if, if, if these claims are somehow legitimized in, in, by the Supreme Court? I mean, what, what is the limiting principle for... Uh, yeah. It's just such it's, a it's Pandora's difficult. box, I, I think. I mean, one of the arguments that, the, uh, that ADF made in this case, uh, they said these videographers actually feel that they have a mission here. They have strong religious beliefs that only the marriage of a man and a woman is acceptable and, and legitimate. And part of the reason they want to expand into this wedding video business is they want to make videos promoting different sets of marriage. And they want to put them on social media and they want to put them on their website and so on and so forth. So they, uh, ADF is trying to squeeze them into the precedent of the Boy Scouts case and the Hurley, Boston, St. Patrick's Day Parade case. They want to be able to argue that this is not just a company, it's an expressive commercial association. And therefore, there's a First Amendment free speech right in here, and that compelling them to make wedding videos would undermine that. And Judge Tunheim says, yeah, but no one is requiring them to put those wedding videos on social media or on their website. Uh, and in fact, uh, they had made a claim that they would be forced to put these on their website as an aspect of equal treatment. And Judge Tunheim says, you know, you guys, you're imagining too far. That is so hypothetical, and there's no indication that the Minnesota Human Rights Agency is going to find you uh, violated the law by not putting it on your website. After all, this is a video made for hire. It's really made for the customers. And they said their business plan is that every customer is going to have to sign a release that allows them to put it on social media and their website. I think a lot of people are going to turn them away. And go to find another wedding videographer. Right. You know, um, I'm, you know, people may be very proud of their wedding videos, but they may not want them to be up there for the entire world to see. Yeah. They just want to show it to family and friends who, you know, you want to put your family and friends to sleep. You make them sit through your three-hour wedding video. <laughs> and now we cut the cake. <laughs> you know. Um. Interesting, interesting stuff that I hope remains hypothetical and not. Well, ADF is going to appeal this to the Eighth Circuit. But I would say with uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop being argued on December 5th, the Eighth Circuit is just going to sit on it to see what the Supreme Court does. Now, they make a lot wider range of, uh, of doctrinal arguments here than are presented in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Uh, so it is entirely possible that the Eighth Circuit would end up concluding that whatever the Supreme Court does in Masterpiece Cake Shop doesn't control all of the issues in this case. It's possible. Uh, but I think it really boils down to the First Amendment issues and that the one case is likely to dictate the result than the other. So we'll see. I'm, sh I'm, pr I'm pretty certain that the Eighth Circuit would not rush to decide this case uh, since, let's say, a petition is filed now and then there's briefing and December 5th will have come and gone and Masterpiece Cake Shack will have been argued. Uh, it's, it's the kind of case where most of us would expect a 5-4 to four decision. So it's one of those cases that might not be issued quickly after the argument because right. people will be drafting dissents and stuff like that. Uh, but certainly before uh, too late in the winter, there'll be a decision in that case. All right, we'll keep watching it. Uh, we'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss the Tennessee Appeals Court vacating a homophobic divorce decree. All right, we are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. The Court of Appeals of Tennessee at Nashville vacated and remanded a marital dissolution agreement and permanent parenting plan that imposed permanent, air quotes here, paramour and homosexual activity restrictions uh, on a gay father when he was around his children. 
Cordery Quincy Bernard Brantley filed a pro se complaint for divorce from Shayla Leanne Guy Brantley in 2015. They had two children, although Cordery disputes the youngest child is his. In any event, in August 2016, they presented uh, the Sumner County Chancellor, Louis W. Olivier III, a proposed marital dissolution agreement and permanent parenting plan that had been previously signed by both parties. But at the hearing for the chancellor to approve this agreement, uh, the wife, Shayla, requested certain changes at the last minute. And she revealed that Cordery is HIV positive and has a boyfriend. So over Cordery's objections, the chancellor modified the final divorce decree with several handwritten injunctions by court. Uh, And these included no paramours overnight, no homosexual activity around children, Father to avoid body fluid exchange with children. No bathing, showering, or sleeping with children. Father may have no paramours around children whatsoever. Well, Cordery was not very happy with these last-minute changes, as any gay father, any gay father would be quite angry yes. about these restrictions yes. in 2017. So he appealed, uh, and the three-judge panel on the Court of Appeals of Tennessee unanimously um, vacated this divorce decree. Now, they saw the dispositive issue as being sort of whether he got ambushed at this hearing and had enough time to sort of uh, react to and present evidence on uh, the sort of charges that were leveled by uh, his wife. And it, it may be actually, in my mind, it may actually be that all of this is true and there there wasn't necessarily evidence to present that he does or does not have a boyfriend. I don't know exactly... Um, you know, what they're thinking about in terms of the the due process that he should have gotten. But in any event, they saw that as really the main issue here, that these changes were added at the last minute, and therefore there was a fundamental denial of due process uh, to Cordray, and that that's why they they had to uh, reverse this divorce decree. But thankfully, they add uh, that when this goes back on remand, that you cannot have homophobic... uh, Restrictions in in some kind of parent final parenting plan as part of a divorce decree, and they cited to a 2004 decision from their court that analyzed these kinds of lifestyle restrictions um, on another gay father, and they sort of cite this case to hammer home that homophobia can't influence visitation decisions. Um, and just a couple of quotes from that uh, 2004 opinion. It is not necessary to create new and different visitation rules and restraints depending on sexual orientation. Visitation decisions should be guided by the best interests of the child. Neither gay parents nor heterosexual parents have special rights. They are subject to the same laws, the same restrictions. Our courts should follow the same principles for placing restrictions on gay parents that they use on any other parents. So apparently, as I said to Art, uh, we, we have a Roy Moore wannabe here in the the Sumner County Chancellor, but thankfully the Court of Appeals of Tennessee is uh, not having it. Um, so this is going to go back down to the, the Chancellor to come up with a new final parenting plan that is not virulently homophobic. So no remand to a different Chancellor. I guess there's probably just one per county. Right. So this might be rural, rural part of the state. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. 
Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in November. <laughs>